The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It is a, a privilege and an honor to, to be here um, this morning uh, at Cairn with you all. Um, I actually attended Cairn when it was still PBU uh, not that long ago. Um, I didn't graduate from here, not because I got kicked out or anything, um, um, but just I was one of those people that God zigzagged to about eight different universities before I actually got myself together and graduated. Uh, and this was gratefully one of those stops along, uh, along uh, the journey for me. Um, but I know we have limited time this morning, so uh, I'm excited to get into God's word. I hope you are as well. Uh, why don't you uh, find me in Daniel chapter 3? Daniel chapter 3, if you wouldn't mind uh, standing with me also as we read God's word. Daniel chapter 3. Beginning at verse 16, for some this may be a familiar passage, and for others it may be quite new. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you need some more time, say hold on. Hold on. All right now. <laughs> All right, amen. <laughs> Daniel, <laughs> y'all a trip, man. Daniel chapter, <laughs> Daniel chapter 3. <laughs> Uh, verse 16. Listen, I'm, I'm going to read for your hearing, uh, then I'm going to pray, then we're going to jump right in. If you don't know anything about black church, let me help you out a little bit. The preacher is helped when you say some amens, if you hear something that blesses your soul. Amen? amen. I heard a little something over there that I liked. Amen. Amen. Uh, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, verse 16. We're only going to read down through verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods. Or worship the gold statue you set up. A uh, title for our time this morning is simply this, trusting in the God who's bigger than your circumstance. Trusting in the God who's bigger than your circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful that we have the privilege to open your word. Because every time we do, we find life and life abundantly in it. In your word, you teach us how we should live that we might please you. And so we want to know your word because knowing your word means that we know you more and more and how we are to live. And we want to be a people who go out into the world as changed and transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might give credible witness to the truthfulness of who God, our God is. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it this day to transform us so that we might be not just merely hearers of the word, but doers also. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. When, when I was younger, um, you know, there were, there were many games that we would play that we had to make up on our own um, because we didn't have PS4 and Xbox when I was growing up. You know, you had Atari, 
Um, some of y'all don't even know what Atari is, but y'all had we we had Atari. Um, but you could really only get that if you had money. And I grew up poor; I didn't have money, right? And so, you know, my mom made us go outside to play. We weren't allowed to stay inside to play. You had to go outside to play. You could only come inside if you wanted some water, and then you had to go right back outside again, right? And so there were all types of games that we made up as we played, and one of the games that I'm about to reference, I know you're probably familiar with because a lot of people play this regardless of nationality, ethnicity, uh, uh, socioeconomic status. There's a game called Trustfall. Do you guys know what that game is? It, it's a game where, you know, you have somebody standing behind you, and by the grace of God, I don't know why we play this game. Like, it just makes no sense to me. Um, I don't know if I trust people that much. But anyway, maybe it's just me. But there, there's somebody behind you, and you just lean back. Like, you, you lean back to the point where you can no longer control gravity, and you have to trust for them to catch you. Right? And there are two particular things that you have to depend on from the person that's tasked with catching you. You have to, one, depend on their strength. Are they actually able to catch you and hold you up when you fall? The second thing that you have to depend on is their character. <laughs> Every once in a while, you'll have somebody that you're trusting in to catch you who is rooting for your downfall. It's the person that steps to the side, watches you fall, and then laughs uncontrollably because they knew that you, they, that you were waiting on them to trust uh, for their trust, and they let you down. You know, the interesting thing about that game, even though you may not realize it all the time, is oftentimes we evaluate our relationship with God based on the rules of that game. Did God catch us? Does he have a sinister plan to inflict harm upon us? Because God didn't catch us, now I have to reassess his character and his trustworthiness. See, sometimes the difficulty of life brings you face to face with scenarios where if you're honest in your heart of hearts, you begin to question whether or not God's really there. Whether or not God really cares about you, whether or not God is really concerned with your good and with your benefit. But I'm glad for passages like Daniel chapter 3, where we can uh, uh, use it as a guide to uh, help us to process through some of our difficult questions and even challenge some of our difficult assumptions about the character of God. And, and in Daniel chapter 3, it opens up with, with King Neb, um, who is building this gold altar or this gold statue that's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and, and he's, he, he's a, a little bit egomaniacal, and he likes all the tension upon himself. And so he says, I'm going to build this statue, and I want everybody to worship the statue, but really it's a worship of me through the statue. And so he builds this statue. He says, when you hear the sound of music, he, he calls all the people, all the high officials from around uh, his nation and says, when you hear the music, when you hear the, the light and the, the, the lyre and the harp and, and the band play, I want you all to fall down and worship uh, this statue. And so uh, they, they called everybody together. As soon as the music was played, everybody did what King Neb uh, said, and they fell down and began to worship this statue. And of course, being a man of power, when you can tell somebody what to do and they follow you unconsciously, it strokes your ego. 
Now imagine a man who has all this power telling people what to do, and he sees the masses fall and fail and do every which way according to his will, and yet there's a small group of people that don't. So it says there's a group of Chaldeans who approach King Neb and say, King Neb, there's the Jews, these Jews who are in positions of power that you put there that should be grateful that you treat them the way that you do, who aren't kneeling or bowing to this statue that you've placed before them. And of course, King Ned flies off the handle and says, it's no way in the world in my kingdom that I rule with my power that there are people that I've placed in positions of power that won't do what I say. And so he calls them, and and for some reason, even though he said, the people that don't bow, the people that don't worship, they'll be immediately thrown into the fire. For some reason, King Neb decides to give this small group of Jews another chance. Three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have to go down before the king. And he says, he says I've heard that you haven't kneeled when the music was played for you to worship this statue. Is something wrong? Did I miss something? Maybe your knees weren't working well. Maybe you have arthritis. Maybe you didn't hear and you've got hearing issues, but whatever the case may be, I'm going to give you another opportunity to worship this golden statue before me. I'm even going to play the band just for you personally so I can watch you do it. Listen to what he says in verse 15. This is so interesting to me. He says, if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Imagine the audacity of a created being who's polytheistic in nature, worshiping many gods. It wasn't uncommon. But imagine you being God in heaven, creating everything, and one of your creatures says, what God is going to save you from my power? So, uh, They don't bow. Nebuchadnezzar flies off the handle. And it says that he orders some of his best soldiers, his most qualified men, to turn up the fire uh, to the highest of the highs that it can go. And they, they get close enough where they're about to throw the men in, and the fire is so hot that they are burned up themselves. And not only are they burned up, but the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fall into the fire. And King Neb looks into the fire and sees not just three men that fell in there, but four walking around. And it's interesting, if you, look at verse, uh, if you look at verse 26, it says, when he calls out to them, he says, you servants of the Most High God. It's interesting that his designation of who God was has now changed from verse 15 to verse 26, where before it was, who can save you from my power? And now it's, you servants of the Most High God. Not only that, but he goes down, and after they come out, the Bible says that they had no effect on their bodies. No hair was singed on them. No clothing was singed on them. They didn't even smell like fire. Now, I like to barbecue. I spend a lot of time barbecuing. If you come to my house and spend any time around me, you know that I barbecue often. There is no way in the world that you can even be in proximity to smoke and not smell like smoke. And yet... These three men were tossed into a raging furnace of fire, and not only was their body not affected, not only were their clothes not affected, but they didn't even smell like smoke. 
If you don't understand that this is the, the comprehensive nature of God's deliverance, where you can be in the hells of all hells and still feel like you're not. That, that's the type of deliverance that God gives, where you can be in the worst possible situation, the worst possible scenario, and actually come out unscathed. That, that's the type of deliverance that we see God do here uh, with these young men. And then Nebuchadnezzar responds, and he says, he says, if anybody even talks bad about this God, I'm going to destroy their entire families. Now, notice he didn't request everybody to worship the one true God. He said, just don't talk bad about him. Just don't say anything offensive about him. And then he says, for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Now, I know we read this story oftentimes or you hear this story and you begin to rejoice because of God's deliverance. And you see this, this king who is arrogant and prideful and, and thinks that all power is his to, to dispense. And he gives no regard for the power and the authority of God. And you see God deliver these three young Jews from the hand of this king miraculously. And we all worship and we praise and we give thanks and we rejoice. And we're like, who God is like our God? And oftentimes we miss what's said in verses 17, 16, 17, and 18. If you look back with me, as they give an answer to King Nebuchadnezzar after he questions them or challenges them, who is this God that can rescue you from my power? The only time that the, the young men respond or say anything in this entire passage is within these verses. And they say, if the God that we serve exists then he can rescue us. Hey, God, thank you for rescue, God. He can rescue you from the power of the king. My God, the rescuer. My God, the, the deliverer. Verse 18. But even if he doesn't. See, I, I wish I was at a shouting church right now because they would have got up and started running around. They said, if my God exists, listen, he can rescue me. But let's just make something clear. Even if for some strange reason God decides not to, he's still God. Even if for some reason my God in all his wisdom and all his might in the ways that I don't understand, even though he can't, even though he can, even if he doesn't, nothing changes about God. If there was one thing I could leave you with today, and I'm not done just in case you thought I was, but if there was something I want you to hang on to today, I want you to hang on to this. God is still God even when he doesn't show up. According to the NIV and some other commentators, there's, uh, there's this, this, uh, this idea, and even Jerome comments on this, the, uh, the, the great uh, uh, theologian. He says, thereby they indicate in their response that it, was not, uh, that it will not be a matter of God's inability to save, but rather his sovereign will if they do perish. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves Especially, at, especially being at a Bible college where, where you guys are regularly inundated with theological truths constantly and books and, and readings. The question that we have to ask ourselves is when we leave this college campus, when you graduate and you get out into the real world and face some real difficulties and some real hardships, who does God become when you face tragedy? 
When things don't go your way, when life is not turning out the way that you thought it would, when you're in social work and all you see is depressedness all around you all day long, when you get into pastoral ministry and the church that you took over to shepherd and love stabs you in the back, who does God become to you then? See, the, the, the truthfulness of this means that, that our theological learning has to take us to a place where God is still a deliverer even when he chooses not to deliver. Does your theological learning take you to a place where God is still your healer even when he decides not to heal? Where he's a provider even when you only seem to be experiencing loss? When he's a shelter when you have no other place to go? Who is God to you when all that's right in the world doesn't seem to be happening to you? See, the truth the real truth of this passage is that God doesn't change based on our circumstances. And does our theological learning, does your discipleship of Jesus, does your following of him take you to a place where no matter what happens to you in your mind, nothing can change your mind about who God is? Many Bible college graduates have fallen by the wayside because their romanticized view of God couldn't carry them through the difficulties of life. The richness of your study should produce in you such a commitment to God that it overflows where you can respond in the way that these young men did, that God can save. I'm not questioning whether he can, but I don't know if he will. And even if he doesn't, he's still who he says he was. There's a hymn writer named Anthony Showalter who was leading a, a singing school back in, uh, in Alabama back in uh, 1887. And one night after uh, leading the singing school, he returned to his boarding house room and found two letters on his bed. And as he went to open them and find out what these letters were and who they were from, he realized that these two letters were from former students of his, uh, students that he, he had had some years ago. And surprisingly, as he opened and read both of those letters, they both told of men who were experiencing the loss of their wives. Imagine that, the, coming back to your room and finding letters from students probably expecting to hear some great news about how, what God is doing in their lives and, and, and how much success they're experiencing out in the world, and yet both of them refer to the loss of a significant loved one. What do you say to somebody who's lost a spouse? Well, Mr. Showalter Walter wrote back, trying to comfort uh, the young men in the midst of their grief, but what does he write? He's thinking through, what do I even say to them to encourage them? What from God's word do I even say to encourage the heart of a man who's just lost his spouse? And as he wrote the letters and got to the end, he included a Bible verse, wanted to include a Bible verse for encouragement, the least that he can do. And he said it on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, which says, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he pondered the words of that verse as he penned them into the letters and the lyrics of the chorus leaning on the everlasting arms came to mind. And as I 
read these words to you. I want you to think upon them every time you get into a situation where you're unsure of what God is doing. When you face, come face to face with tragedy or even a decision that may cost you something significant. It may even cost you your life because who knows where God will send you out into the world. But I want you to remember these words that were written by Mr. Showalter. Showalter. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms, I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. If you know it, sing it with me. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure. From all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. In the midst of tragedy, as a Christian, if you believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the power that he has in the world, if you believe in his sovereignty and in his might, and if you believe that all things do work together for the good for those who love and are called according to his purpose, then you need to make sure that that song is in your soul every time you face some tragedy, leaning on the everlasting arms. God bless you.